0: We believe the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a restoration of the original Church established by Jesus Christ, which was built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. We declare to the world that the fullness of the gospel has been restored to the earth. We declare with boldness. That the keys of the priesthood have been restored to man. We declare to the world that this is the day referred to by biblical prophets as the latter days. It is the final time before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign on the earth. So we've got Doctrine and Covenants sections 20-22 through 22. Um, section 20 is a long one, but it has a lot of stuff in it, um, and really, we get some, some really important doctrinal, procedural kind of guidance in these sections, more than we've gotten in, the, in, in some of the previous ones, because these are the sections where we're starting to establish the organization of the church and kind of turn it from just being a group of believers into, well, into an organization. And it's interesting because I I found that in uh, verse 11 of section 20, verse 11 and 12, he's talking about, this is the, the Lord's revelation, and he's talking to Joseph Smith Jr. about the Book of Mormon and how that came to pass. And in verse 11, it says, proving to the world that the holy scriptures are true, and that God does inspire men and call them to his holy work in this age and generation, as well as in the generations of old thereby showing that he is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. And to me, that's really what this is about, because you're, you're seeing there's a, there was an organization when Christ was on the earth. There was an organization that he established in the Americas after he came and visited them. And now he's establishing an organization again. And it just goes to show that his, his methods of organizing his church are consistent. There's certain responsibilities, there's certain callings, there's certain objectives, there's certain ordinances that are the same no matter when it happened or where. And that to me is really important because, you know, uh, if he had come and established something completely different, we would be like, wait a second, why was the original church this way and this one different? One of the things that came up in that meeting, in the first one on on April 6th, Um, It's actually on the 9th of June of 1830 at the first conference of the church following its organization. uh, The Articles and Covenants of the Church of Christ. And that set forth the offices, ordinances, and procedures that were going to be part of the the newly formed church. And in Joseph Smith's Revelations, that book that's on LDS.org, talks a little bit about that. The minutes of that meeting, the one on the 9th of June, 1830... Recorded articles and covenants read by Joseph Smith Jr. and received by unanimous voice of the whole congregation, which consisted of most of the male members of the church. The importance of the articles and covenants to the church is suggested by the fact that it was the first relevant revelatory document selected for printing in the church's earliest periodical, The Evening and the Morning Star, and the only one published there twice. In the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, the compilers placed articles and covenants as the second section preceded only by the revelatory preface. In many ways, Articles and Covenants is unique. No other early revelatory text produced by Joseph Smith was presented to a conference of the Church for the approbation of the membership. The format and style of Articles and Covenants also differed from other revelations. Rather than the first-person voice of God declaring his will to a specific recipient, as in most of Joseph Smith's early early revelations, Articles and Covenants Instead, begins with a third-person historical account of the founding of the Church and a brief history of Joseph Smith. In subsequent paragraphs, the document makes several declarations of, believing, of belief using the first-person plural statement, We Know. As with some of Joseph Smith's other revelatory texts, Article and Covenants was amended from time to time. The most substantive re- revisions appear to have been made in the preparation for its publication in 1835, Doctrine and Covenants. I thought that was really interesting that it was one of it was the only revelation that was ever brought to a conference of the church to be approved. Most of the revelations were like here's what the Lord says, understand it and live it. And this one was kind of like, okay, he's setting forth this thing, everyone needs to have buy-in. Everyone needs to agree to this. And I don't think that if they had rejected it, that it would have changed the route that the church would have taken, but it was like, we're not going to get this thing started until it's approved, until everyone's in agreement.
1: Well, I think that also goes along with nowadays, every general conference, how there is a, a sustaining vote taken of the general authorities and, and the and the general auxiliary leaders of the church. And it was interesting because one, one, I forget the name of who gave the talk, but one of the brethren, a few years ago, gave a talk about why do we do that? Why do we sustain even when there are at times people who are not or descend Dissent? They have to send mm-hmm. their vote. Um, and he said that it isn't a vote like a like a democratic vote. Right. It's a vote of uh, unity to be united, and it's also so people know who the leaders are. So it is clear who has the authority and the right to give revelation. And I think that's important because it kind of keeps things organized. Like the scripture says, no man taketh this honor upon themselves, you know, but those that are chosen by God. And in order to know that, you must know how, you know, what, what is the order of things. You know, I don't know. I think it's
0: interesting. Yeah, there's a... A gospel topics essay as well about common consent, and that's also on LDS.org. There's a couple paragraphs in there that really stood out to me, um, talking specifically about this uh, Uh, section pretty much. It says, early church leaders adopted procedures used in other organizations, such as raising hands to vote, in, uh, in their attempts to fill the Lord's command that business be conducted by common consent. Formalities like calling meetings to order, sustaining officers, and decisions by vote, keeping minutes, and announcing agenda items had become commonplace in many different organizations during the previous century. Churches, government bodies, and private clubs alike employed similar procedures, taking the British House of Commons as their model. By the 1820s, most Americans, including Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, look, took these parliamentary procedures for granted as the way the meeting should be run. These forms helped set apart church meetings, including the founding meeting, As legitimate or official rather than an informal gathering. The practice of conducting church business by common consent sometimes resulted in contrary votes. A revelation in 1841 even recognized the possibility of the saints not ratifying callings issued by revelation. A commandment I give unto you, the Lord declared, that you should fill all these offices and approve of those names which I have mentioned, or else disapprove of them at my general conference. And that's in, I think, section 124. Um, some members at an 1824 conference objected to retaining the elders quorum president, a bishop, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and a counselor in the Nauvoo High Priest Quorum Presidency. The respective quorums subsequently met in councils to reconsider these callings. At a conference in 1843, Joseph Smith questioned Sidney Rigdon's fitness to serve as a counselor in the First Presidency. Other leaders spoke out in support of Rigdon, and the assembled church members voted to retain him in his calling against Joseph Smith's initial wishes. Joseph Smith begrudgingly accepted the the result. I think, yeah, I think what we're, the the issue is that a lot of times we're used to having uh, a democratic voice. We're used to like having elections and voting on propositions and voting on different things like that and the majority rules. And these aren't really what that is. (laughs) This is not, it doesn't have to be unanimous and it doesn't have to be a majority in order for it to pass. What it is is an opportunity, number one, for you to say, I support and sustain this person. And number two, it, it is an opportunity that if you do happen to know something that maybe they, the people calling this person ought to know, that you can say, you know, I object, and then afterwards discuss with them the reason why. And if you say, you know, uh, this person actually does this or that, or I don't know, for whatever reason you feel like they shouldn't have that calling. They can reconsider that, and maybe that leads to them saying, oh, gosh, we had no idea. Uh, They shouldn't have this. Or they can say, okay, we've taken that into consideration, and thank you for your input, but this person's still going to have a calling.
1: Yeah, I, I find it similar to prayer in the sense that the majority of time when we pray, we're aligning our will to our Heavenly Father. And then there are some times when we pray when we're just asking for can you remove this obstacle? Right. And and we have scriptures that tell us, "I would have given to you, save you should ask." And then there's other times when we have scripture that says, "Study it out in your mind." And 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 so, I like to think about it in the sense of what 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 is the purpose of our sustaining vote? What do we say by that? We say we are going to participate. We're going to help this person carry out their role because their role is to help all of us or to do this function that is needed from being the organist to being the program maker you know when we made programs now they're all digital right Uh, (laughs) you know passing the sacrament being a deacon uh, being a teacher in sunday school you know and when we sustain them it's almost like an act of charity where a lot of the times all, all of the individuals doing these callings may be their first time doing the calling they may have several weeks of stumbling several weeks of figuring out how to do or they may just not be that good a teacher or that good of, at, at something but we're saying they are in development this is good for them and the lord wants them to learn something here and also them being in their calling maybe the lord wants me to learn something it's a lot of the times People can feel, oh, I can do that better. Or why do they get this calling and I got this calling? And and it's like the call for unity and the sustainment is a call to let all those feelings go. And to be involved and be present and allow the Lord to work through them and make them better. And allow us to become better too by by doing whatever we can to help them and sustain them. It's It's, it's very much we have to see try to see it through the lord's perspective sometimes the calling is for them but that doesn't mean that you can't learn that you can't help i've seen in my life i've seen a maturity ladder of of understanding among people that are really good at tasks or really good at 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 something especially like in a job The true master of that function is the one that can help others learn it and do it well. And one of the names we call our savior is master. And him being the master of all these Christ-like attributes, because they are his attributes. He is helping us develop those. And when we are given callings, when we are called to participate, as inadequate as we are, the what we're asked to is to do our best and as we see others and everybody doing their best you're going to realize there are different types of best <laughs> there's not one best there's different types and there's also times when and i've done this when you're cruising through calling you're just going through the motions you're just you know doing the bare minimum and then there's times when something flips and you have a good interaction and you realize man I didn't know, I thought what I was doing was kind of insignificant, but I didn't know it affected this person or helped this person. And then you kind of step it up a little bit and you decide, hey, I'm going to do a little bit better, and do a little bit better. I don't know. I just think the Savior wants us to, in whatever we're called to do, to do the best we can, you know? And that is worthy of many blessings. Um, you know, if if you're designing programs, do the best darn program you can, you know? Um, And if somebody else can do it better, it doesn't matter. The Lord called you to do it, you know? And if you can do it better, can you help that person? Or can you just be grateful and focus on something else that you can do better? Maybe you are already really good at programs or really good at communicating or speaking or teaching. Well, there's got to be something else that you can work on or help those that are learning, you know?
0: Yeah, and... And really how how many of us have had that experience of getting a calling that we weren't really sure about or we were kind of nervous to take on? And then that moment when you're you're being sustained by the entire ward, back when we used to see each other in that way in person, um, and you stand up and every they say so and so has been called to do this and that and the whole ward raises their hands saying they're gonna sustain you. Like If nothing else, it should give you that sense of comfort that everyone has got your back and different different levels. You know, there might be people that are there to help you through whatever. There might be people who are like, "Eh, if they ask me, then I'll help. But just knowing that everyone is on the same page should give you a sense of comfort and confidence that not only the Lord wants you to do this, not only the bishopric wants you to do this or the state presidency or whatever, but so does every so do your peers. So does everyone around you. That you're okay we we, want to see you succeed in this like that that's great and i think that's mainly one of the reasons why because it talks about in, in several different texts about how in 1829 it was revealed that they would the lord would establish his church and it wasn't until 1830 that it happened and the lord told joseph i don't want you and oliver to be ordained elders and as leaders of the church until there can be consent among the members until there can be people to agree to this and so that's why they did it you know they had this meeting they were ordained each other elders they uh, received revelation that joseph smith would be the the prophet seer and revelator of the church and everyone kind of agreed to that and i think that that's number one it shows oliver and, and joseph you know we've got your back we believe that this is the way it should be that the lord has chosen you for this calling but it also is like okay it, it's buy-in, it's structure, it's organization, and it sets a precedence for the future to today. You know, the reason why we do that stuff today is because it's how we did it originally. It's how we did it first. Yeah. And the Lord is a is a is a God of order, and He wants to establish that from from day one. Here's how this will be carried out. And here we are, you know, over 150 years later, and almost 200 years later, and we're doing the same thing.
1: What what I really enjoy about the restored gospel, especially this period of time with the early saints, is that for so long we've read the scriptures and heard about, hey, the Lord wants his people to be one. If you're one, you're with me, be Zion, you know, uh, build the kingdom of God on earth. And and then he, the Lord is taking the time to give us some guidance. How do we do this? How should you interact with each other? How should you organize yourselves? What happens when you have disputations? How do you handle these councils? Why should you have conferences? And we have to keep in mind that it's not just about doing. It's about becoming. You know, we, we're, we're to become. And we have to trust the system. Um, that's not to say that there aren't errors and there aren't problems problems that people don't abuse their callings or let pride creep in but when we step back and we look at what was the actual purpose i really like this quote by president john taylor in the in the questions asked how do how does one sustain a church officer Uh, president john taylor said what is meant by sustaining a person do we understand it is it very simple it it is a very simple thing to me i do not know how it is to you For instance, if a man be a teacher and I vote that I will sustain him in his position, when he visits me in an official capacity, I will welcome him and treat him with consideration, kindness and respect. And if I need counsel, I will ask it at his hand and I will do everything I can to sustain him. That would be proper in a principle of righteousness and I would not say anything derogatory to his character. If that is not correct, I have yet to learn it. And then if anybody in my presence were to whisper something about him disparaging to his reputation, I would say, look here. Are you a saint? Yes. Do you not hold up your hand to sustain him? Yes. Then why do you not do it? If any man make an attack upon his reputation, for all men's reputations are are of importance to them, I would defend him in some such way. But what what he's getting to at is... To sustain later on, we're going to, in the in the Doctrine and Covenants, we're going to learn ab- about what it is to be a good servant and how we should be anxiously engaged, how we should be basically proactive. Do we wait for the clipboard to come to us <laughs> until we have no other recourse and are finally guilted into signing up? Or do we move things to say, you know what, I can do it. When uh, Lehi was called to go to the the desert and start his journey, he didn't do it because he was already planning on going that way, you know? (laughs) And oftentimes we forget that a lot of these things are not convenient at first. And at first it takes us out of our comfort zone. Almost all growth requires us to be in a little bit of discomfort. But then that becomes the new norm. And that becomes something we can do better and better. And that's how our capacity grows. And if we truly are in the in the business of following a Savior who promises eternal progression, then gradual progression should be something we strive for all the time.
0: So let me ask, as far as like raising your hand for sustaining, I don't think it necessarily has to be if you're opposed to the person would it be acceptable to raise your hand in opposition if you were like you know what i don't feel like i can sustain that person not because of that person but just because i don't feel like i can commit to that level of support
1: i think i think i think most of the time well one thing is if if i if i knew the issue was more with me than with them I wouldn't do it publicly. You know, most of the time that I've seen people not uh, sustain someone, they're asked to speak with the presiding authority afterwards, speak with your stake president or your bishop and so forth. And I've never done it. So I don't know what goes on. But I would assume it's just a conversation as any other PPI or, or, or any other conversation with your leader. Okay, tell me what you feel. And if and if it comes out you know what i'm so busy and i know that this and they're going to ask and i'm not going to be able you know where does the conversation go from there it probably will go very much towards you right. like what can yeah. you do about your life how can you change how can you change your heart can you pray for charity can you pray you know to 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 have an added measure of understanding of where you should go i think as we've seen the pattern in the doctor comments so far is Problems will come. All, it, the Lego pieces don't just get thrown in the air and magically construct themselves. We have to actively be searching things out, searching and, and, and seeking revelation. And I think, you know, when President Hinckley he said something like to the to the line of, we live beneath our privilege to receive revelation. Like we don't we don't utilize it as much as we should. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think it kind of goes to that: is we should be, if, if we have a problem with something, we should be seeking the Lord's counsel, and and those leaders whom whom have those keys to help us figure out why am I feeling this way, why? And and that's the thing: is if to feel that way is nothing bad. There are times when I've I've felt, hey, I don't I don't want to do this, and I know it's a righteous thing, but I just have no desire to do this. But as soon as I came to grips with where I was, then when I prayed about it, I was actually praying about something meaningful, as opposed to you know, hey, help me through the day bless this food. You know, we can do those ones, and those are nice, you know, and they have their place. But when it's something meaningful, how do different do we pray, and are we then searching and listening and hearing, and then we'll see that the majority of times. It's not we're trying to move the world. It's more we move ourselves right. to a different location, to a different perspective. And then when we get that perspective, we can see things a little bit different.
0: Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think that if you are feeling like, I don't know if I can commit to sustaining this person, like you said, I think that's more of a personal Thing, then something necessarily needs to be brought up to the entire congregation right that's more like okay reanalyze why why is it that you feel that way and how can you change and maybe you you will have to say no i can't fulfill that request that you've made of me but that doesn't mean that you can't say but i still sustain you in what you're doing and i support what you're doing and i don't i don't think that that is exclusive of that situation um the other thing I thought was interesting is that section 20 is basically like a long drawn out explanation of the fourth article of faith. And the reason I say that is because it lists the, the principles and of the gospel, right? First, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about how the establishment of the church and through Joseph Smith and calling of a prophet and all that. And then he goes into repentance, second repentance, right? Talks about how everyone should repent and find ways to be a better person and to uh, be sanctified, including those, it says, yeah, even those who are sanctified, take heed also. Even if you have been baptized or joined the church, that there's still that process of repentance. Third, baptism by immersion. He basically says, here's what baptism is about, and this is what it's for. And then uh, the last section he, he goes into would be the fourth principle, which is laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. And that to me is the authority of the priesthood, right? He goes into, the different priesthood callings, what their responsibilities are, what their role is, and how each one of them kind of builds upon the other. I think that that's excellent. It's They're not siloed offices that, you know, have to politic against each other somehow to get things done. What it is is slowly building upon uh, responsibilities and duties until you reach a point where you have all of that responsibility and duty at, at the same time. And I think Introducing people little by little to increasing uh, res- duties and responsibilities is is excellent. It allows you the chance to adapt and to adjust to new things without feeling overwhelmed. Okay, here you go. Now watch over the entire ward and do all this. You know, with a deacon, it's actually kind of a lot of things, <laughs> a lot of really important things. And back then, these were typically not 12-year-old boys. These were grown men. Um, but as we've gone on and we you know, the age for becoming a deacon was around age 12. You kind of look at that and you say, well, they're kind of responsible for a lot of things. Teachers, man, can a 14-year-old do this? But all of this is with purpose. And I think it's to get those kids thinking outside of themselves and get them thinking about service in their ward. It's funny
1: that, I don't know, I, I view it different, not differently, but Here's a different perspective. Let me just say okay. <laughs> it. I view the duties of a deacon, you know, that are to take care of the church, to be watchful, to, you know, to take care of things. And I view a 12-year-old and I think, what is something that 12-year-olds need to learn? You know what? They need <laughs> to learn how to take care of stuff, to clean their yeah. room, to do their homework. They're going from an age where they've been told what to do to now you know what to do. You need to go do it. You need to get up and get it ready for school on your own make sure you do your homework, start managing your time, you know, and and I look at this thing as, as the Aaronic priesthood being the temporal priesthood, the one that does, uh, kind of teaches and exercises and takes care of the temporal things of the church, you know, like the sh- shoveling of the snow, making sure fast offerings are collected, making sure chairs are set up, and to us, we think that Priesthood functions? Do they need to be magical things where we shake a stick and a, and a star appears in the heaven? No. Th- this is this life is to be a very meaningful experience that we develop traits and attributes. And although those attributes aren't exclusive, the way the Lord has ordered is saying He wants the development of these young men to be in this fashion. Young man, old man, anybody. You start out developing how to nurture and take care of things. And then as a teacher to watch out for backbiting and and gossiping and and to put an end to to kind of contention. And you look at that and you say, well, that's kind of a perfect timing in that age because what are most teenagers known for? Being rebellious, backbiting, being you know. So (laughs) to me, I always look at it as it starts with you. If you can master this as you're mastering the natural man. Then as you interact with others, and then as the priesthood is given to bless everyone. Through your example, the young women, the young men, the the Relief Society, the Elders' Quorum, as everyone has mastered these principles that aren't exclusive to just, you know, those that hold the priesthood, but to everyone, what kind of a place would we have? We'd have a really good place to be, you know. Uh, We're almost creating a gospel-like culture.
0: Later on, he kind of describes exactly what the the format of baptism is, that it's by immersion and all of that. And there's a another Gospel Topics essay called Religious Beliefs in Joseph Smith's Day. And the last section of that is Sacraments and Authority. And I just wanted to read that because I thought it was really pertinent here um, and it, into the other sections as well. It says Christians commonly referred to ordinances or sacred observances such as baptism with the term sacraments. In the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox traditions, the sacraments were rites considered essential for salvation. Priests traced their authority to administer the sacraments through a succession of bishops back to the ancient apostles led by Peter. Protestant reformers, especially Martin Luther and John Calvin, considered the sacraments to be signs of faith. Authority fell to the congregation of believers rather than to the ordained few, and the validation of a sacrament rested within the Holy Spirit Spirit alone. The mode, timing, and necessity of baptism were vigorously debated. Catholic and Orthodox traditions of baptizing infants came under scrutiny during the European Reformation. Though Protestants in America remained split over the practice, Baptists held that only those acting in faith, fully aware of their choice to, be, to come unto Christ, should receive a valid baptism. Others believe the baptism rite itself remained valid regardless of age or maturity of the one being baptized. The forms of baptism were also debated. Baptists and others emphasized immersion, while Lutherans, Episcopalians, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, and Methodists allowed for baptism by pouring or sprinkling. These and other debates spurred Joseph Smith toward many of his most glorious revelations. Latter-day Saint scripture abounds in revealed answers to questions regarding the authority of the Bible, the nature of the Godhead, the fate of the human soul, the necessity and form of baptism, the authority of the priesthood, and the workings of the Holy Spirit. These modern revelations outline a system of doctrines and sacred ordinances distinct from those found in the culture surrounding the Latter-day Saints. And I think we see that in in section 20, especially kind of like in verse 71. No one can be received into the church of Christ unless he has arrived unto the years of accountability before God and is capable of repentance. Then it goes on uh, to explain, you know, that it's done by immersion and all of that. But I think it's really important, you know, that age of accountability. It was kind of later determined that that was going to be age eight. But I also think that, you know, it doesn't necessarily say that here in this scripture. And if there's an eight year old who, uh, it's clear isn't prepared yet, I think it's totally within, <laughs> I think it's totally acceptable to wait a year or something, um, if it, if that child needs that. And that, that kind of goes along with the principle of, um, Teaching with with, uh, Come Follow Me, teaching with Preach My Gospel, where it's adapting to the needs of the individual. And there might be an instance where there might be a a kid who's just not quite there yet. And if they're eight and a half when they get baptized and it wasn't on their eighth birthday, that's all right. The most important thing is that they understand, and it it says here, that they be capable of repentance, that they know right from wrong, and that they know what it means to repent, um, at least in principle, right?
1: Yeah, well, I also think, I mean, it's it's spot on for children, but I also think that we as adults should remember that. Yeah. That repentance is not a passive thing. That repentance takes effort and is an active thing. And that sometimes we can be sorry, but are we repentant sorry? You know, like, are we... Um, because... Because just as baptism would avail a child nothing because they they are neither, you know, they're not capable to repent, so is us, our sacrament today, maybe didn't avail you nothing. Because did you do it with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, you know? Did you do it the way, you know, the way that it's meaningful, right?
0: Yep. So moving on to section 21. In the Joseph Smith Revelations book about that, it kind of gives a little bit of background to it. It's talking about the the establishment of the church and the calling of uh, different leaders and priesthood leaders. And it says, describing the fulfillment of those instructions, Joseph Smith history explains that Joseph Smith and his associates met together for that purpose at the house of Mr. Whitmer, Peter Whitmer, Sr., on the 6th of April, 1830. Those who attended the meeting, the history further explained, consented by unanimous vote. Um, I then laid my hands upon Oliver Cowdery and ordained him an elder, after which he ordained me also to the office of an elder of said church. I then partook of the sacramental bread and wine, and then laid hands upon on each individual member of the church present that they might receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, and be confirmed members of the Church of Christ. Then, while the, group's, the group was yet together, Joseph Smith dictated the revelation below. And so, it, this was, uh, section 21 actually came after, Uh, We're at the end of that initial organizing uh, meeting of the church, and I think that's kind of interesting because of what Section 21 talks about. Starting off at the very beginning, there should be a record kept among you. um, That they needed to keep a record of the transpirings of of this new newly organized church.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's interesting too. They it says over here in a little tidbit of the history. It says. on April 6, 1830, in the state of New York, a small group of people convened in the home of Peter Whitmer, Sr. No heads of nations were invited to this meeting, nor were religious leaders of that day. No newspapers heralded the event of the meeting. But in heaven, and angels rejoiced, and on earth, this select group, under the direction of the modern prophet, organized the Church of Jesus Christ. As soon as they were ordained, they, they broke bread and they had the sacrament. And, uh, yeah, verse 9 where it says, For behold, I will bless all those who labor in my vineyard with a mighty blessing, and they shall believe in his words, which are given him through me by the, com- by the Comforter, which manifesteth that Jesus was crucified by sinful man for the sins of the world, yea, and for the rem- remission of sins unto the contract of heart. And then, um, so I was looking at contrition. And this was an interesting thing. What is contrition? Uh, Well, the the question is, is, um, what's broken heart and a contrite spirit? And this one is a a quote from uh, President Joseph Fielding Smith, who says, contrition is manifestation of a broken heart with deeply sorrow for sin, a realization of the nature of wrongdoing, and the desire for forgiveness through the grace of God. A contrite spirit is essential to salvation. And then he says, what is a broken heart? One that is humble, one that is touched by the spirit of the Lord, which is willing to abide in all the covenants and obligations which the gospel entails. So I've been thinking about that because I think for us to have a contrite heart and a broken or a contrite spirit and a broken heart, (laughs) we have to have gratitude. We have to, it's not a, it's not a pessimistic outlook. It's an optimistic outlook it's uh, it's kind of like a spiritual aha moment like I I just learned I can do this better well I just feel something I haven't felt before and I think I often and I think most people if we pay attention will notice you feel that a lot especially when you hear people sharing their testimony when you hear a talk and conference when you are partaking on the sacrament when you're being introspective you feel something within us the spirit just inviting us to do a little better or or that that when some you know it happens all the time when somebody shares a really powerful testimony you feel like you feel kind of what they feel you feel if they're up there expressing a deep gratitude or for some great blessing that they've been waiting for you feel and you rejoice with them and i i find that i don't know like very therapeutic. You know, when I come home from church and I feel recharged, it's mostly not for things I've done. It's for feelings I've felt while I've seen or felt others sharing their thoughts, ideas that within me give me thoughts and ideas about my life and about things I can do differently. And I think that's the pattern. That's why when i hear the words this is a living church a living gospel it's because it continuously applies the principles to us in a very personal way and the the organization that the heavenly father has laid out for us is that through jesus christ prophets are called and those prophets are given counsel and keys for to direct all of us, and then that those keys and counsel are then uh, specifically applied to smaller areas, to area authorities, to state presidents, to bishops, all the way to homes with parents and their children. And that as we follow that, almost like that chain of revelation, we we take it's um I see like Christ paints a big picture. And then our prophet paints a picture saying, we are in this, in Christ's picture, we are in this area, right here. And we're heading that way. See the big picture that Christ painted? Mm-hmm. He wants us over there. And then in, the, in, the, in like a stake, they say, well, for our little section, in order to be productive in the picture that our prophet has painted, we need to be here. And that picture is then part of the big picture of Christ, you know. And then in our home, it's like, how do we get ourselves where our word is? and what the savior wants us, you know. And it's kind of everybody working together and there's something really powerful about that kind of unity where it's not a it doesn't dilute the power. It actually or, organization amplifies the power and it keeps us all focused on the sphere on the sphere of influence that our agency is most impactful in. We get in trouble when we start stepping outside of that sphere of influence and trying to tell other people what to do.
0: Yeah, in, in that verse, I think what's, what's meant to help us in all of that, what's meant to help us in repentance with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, uh, is the Holy Ghost who's identified there as a comforter. Someone who's supposed to come in in your darkest time and help you see that there's hope, help you see that there's benefit to this. It's not a guilt trip. It's not a the Holy Ghost is not meant to come in and make you feel horrible about yourself and remind you of all the bad things you've done. We'll do that on our own. Right. The Holy Ghost is meant to come in and say, hey, you're going to be okay, And here's how. Stay the course. Find your way back. And you're going to be fine. The Lord loves you. Here's some feelings, you know, (laughs) like to bolster you up when you're in your darkest moment. When you, when you have a broken heart, when you feel like I've done something wrong and I need help, well, the Lord sends his comforter, sends the Holy Ghost to say, hey, you can do this. And I think that, that that's a really a different approach to repentance than oftentimes where we see, because oftentimes we see repentance as, I think I said this last time, you know, it's kind of like, a, you better fix this or else, you know, and it's not really that way. It's a, you have the time, you have the opportunity to change and you have the ability to do so, and you have tools to help you along the way.
1: This, is, this may not make sense to anybody ever. <laughs> but for me, I there's almost like in my mind, there's almost like an intersection at the, at the corner of, I am truly honest about how I feel. And the cross street is, I am willing to do what the Lord tells me to do. And in that, intersection is where I always find the savior. And I try to that's the best way I can explain it. When I when I get to the point where I am honest, and the honesty is sometimes it's not pretty. It's not polished. It's not but it's honest. When I can be honest about how I feel and what I've done and where I am. And what and then I feel like then The Holy Ghost is willing to testify and work with you. I think we create a lot of barriers of dishonesty and narratives and justifications and stories and whatever that shield us from the truth. And the truth is, right now, this is the truth. This is where I stand. This is what I'm after. This is what I'm desiring. And whether it's good or bad, this is the truth now where do we go and that's the intersection like that i find that real change begins to happen which for me it's a huge testimony because i think the lord has given us plenty of examples where he says the sin there are varying degrees of sin but no degree is powerful enough that if you are honestly willing to change That there isn't a way out or a way back. That's not to say go do the worst thing in the world and you know la da da everything will be fine. No, it all has an effect. But if but if you're honest and you want to make changes, that's the safety of staying within the guardrails of the church of the gospel and the commandments makes it so mistakes are easily repaired. When we stray out of the safety of the commandments, mistakes can take years, if not lifetimes, to overcome. I both scenarios can have a happy ending through the Savior, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it does. And I think that you were looking at especially I mean it applies to us now, but you're looking at these people who are joining the church in the earliest of days as it's just being organized and they're trying to understand, you know, what does it mean to repent and what does it mean to be baptized and what does it mean to to follow a prophet, stuff that, you know, at the time it was a lot of fire and brimstone type preaching. And this was a kind of a different message. And this was a a different message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of hope, not a gospel of fear. And it was something that they, I think many people embraced because of that. They liked the idea that we can join a church that's going to bring us hope and happiness and not just we got to survive and not be condemned, you know, (laughs) like, and it's funny because once we get all these instructions about baptism and how it's supposed to work and the authority and who's supposed to carry it out, then we get section 22, which is a direct revelation regarding those who have already been baptized. And I'm sure there were a lot of people that were like, okay, I get it. Baptism should be done by immersion. I already have that. I I was already baptized that way. And I knew what I was doing. And I, I consented to the baptism and all that. Like, I already did that. So do I have to be baptized again? And the Lord's pretty clear on this in section 22. All old covenants have I caused to be done away in this thing. And this is a new and everlasting covenant, even that which is from the beginning. Wherefore, although a man should be baptized an hundred times, it availeth him nothing. For you cannot enter in at the straight gate by the law of Moses, neither by your dead works. It doesn't beat around the bush. He basically says... That's old, that's old law stuff or that this is a new covenant you're making with me under new understanding, under new context.
1: Well, I like how you say that new understanding because it really is knowledge you're taking. You're taking a different knowledge of what repentance really means. Yep. And you're taking a knowledge that this isn't a one-time event. This is a sacrament that we do continuously because our progression is part of the journey where oftentimes we feel it, it kind of there's a weird thought between like justice and mercy and grace and 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 how are we saved by grace or are we saved by works and yeah you know, all these things and mm-hmm. and the, and the answer is yes you you're saved by both in a way you you have to get yourself to christ so he can heal you but you have to at least face that direction you have to be putting forth your effort knowing that even our perfect, most best effort will never be enough. But he still asks for our effort. So it's kind of a little bit of both, you know. Yeah,
0: and I I think it's another indication of how the Lord's saying, this is the reestablishment of my church. Anything that you've done before this, while it was great, and I'm sure you did it with real intent, like now is being done with the proper authority and the proper way. And with that knowledge that, uh, of the gospel that you didn't have before, that you have now, and so you're recommitting, and that's why it's necessary. I mean, I had people on my mission that were born into the Catholic Church and baptized there as an infant, and then at some point in their life, they became what in Guatemala is normally referred to as an evangelical, right, which is basically just a Protestant Christian uh, sect. And they would be baptized again. And it was usually by immersion and they were older and so they knew what was happening. And then we would go and we would be teaching them and they would be like having profound spiritual awakening. And they would we'd bring up baptism and it was like, oh, I already did that. And there had to be kind of an explanation of, okay, let's go into priesthood authority. Let's go into why why it is that it's necessary to be baptized yet again, a third time. And some people kind of didn't really like that because they're like, well, I've I've already done that and it sounds exactly the same as what I did before. But what they didn't realize is that not only does the the priesthood authority have a lot to do with that, but also like your your increased and in different understanding of how the gospel works and especially how repentance works like you were saying it makes it so that this is not the same covenant again. This is a new covenant that you're making. A lot of times when people understood that, it was like, okay, I'm ready to to recommit to the Lord again in this new way.
1: It's probably been this last year. really has sunk in with me that the Lord wants us to learn how to continuously progress, how to get better at something. And oftentimes, we are unwilling to let go of the rung of the ladder we're on and grab the next one because we feel by grabbing the next one, we're ungrateful, or, or or we're we're abandoning our own ladder, and and that's the thing that I don't know gets stuck in my mind is the Lord, and all the, the gospel is the same for everyone, but there's room for everyone in the gospel. So if if you're smoking secretly in your house. <laughs> That's a certain thing that needs to be addressed. If you're smoking and you don't know that that's wrong, that's a different way to address, you know? If you have no smoking issue, but you have something else, right? That's a different way to address that. What we tend to do is we grab a commandment and like a club, we just start whacking everything that doesn't fit it. (laughs) And And we don't realize that ourselves, it's almost like when I... When you're young, you you hope for God's justice because you feel wrong. And when you get older, you pray for God's mercy because you've now lived enough where you know you've wronged others. And we are all on these different levels of understanding along the path. And that's where as a disciple, above all, we're told to have charity, to have compassion, to love people, to see their potential as christ sees ours and if we are honest he sees us with maybe all of our imperfections and a few good traits and he says slowly we're going to be moving some of this energy you're wasting on these things to this good side to to increase these traits. and you're you daniel are moving at five imperfections a year (laughs) and then you look at somebody like me and you're like Really, you have one good thing and like 39 bad ones, and you're moving at a, a 0.5. But are you both honest? Are you both willing to do it? Then you're both blessed. Then you both feel the spirit. It's almost like we look at others as a one-size-fits-all, and when it doesn't fit or we see discrepancies, we throw away the plan. We throw away the gospel and say, this is restrictive, or this there's no room here for me, or... And it's, it's because we've misapplied it. And I think that's what the Lord is trying to do in Doctrine and Covenants, is trying to teach us how to apply these principles practically and responsibly and equitably. And then, and then I love it because he gives a bunch of instructions and then he throws in there like a deep principle. Yeah. But if you don't do this, it's for nothing, right? And you're like, okay, so it's not just the action. And I cannot be passive, and I have to consciously think about this. And we, for so long as saints, we've criticized these dead religions because where are your prophets? Where's your revelation? Where's your gifts of the spirit? Where's the organization? And then we get the organization, and oftentimes we want to put the new wine in old bottles, ways of thinking. And think, why isn't this fit? Why is the wine getting spoiled, you know? And it's almost like, you no, know, we have to put new wine in new bottles. We have to let it, let it go. And that doesn't mean that your old bottle didn't get you this far. And, and your old way of thinking didn't serve you well. But like all things, they have limitations. Now you have to take a leap of faith and, and see a different perspective. And-
0: Not only that, but I think we're seeing in every, in every one of these sections how, how you're saying... There's kind of an instruction manual aspect to it. Here's the deacons, teachers, priests. Here's their responsibilities. But there's also always some sort of accompanying reason why. Why do we do this? Because he continues to bring up the atonement. He continues to bring up repentance. He continues to bring up these gospel principles that help us understand why is it important to do it this way. And that, to me, makes it different from just kind of a Uh, how-to manual right this is also uh here's how you do it and here's why this matters and here's why you should be doing it this way because in the end the purpose is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man why do we want people designated to reduce conflict in our wards why do we want people to watch over the church why do we want people to serve the sacrament because in the end we want everyone to return back to him It's not just to give the youth something to do, right? (laughs) It's because if we are humble enough to listen to a deacon, a teacher, a priest, if those deacons, teachers, and priests are humble enough to do their best to do the duty they've been assigned, all of us are better off, and all of us have an opportunity to return to our Heavenly Father. That's why it's so important. Now, here's how to do it, right? (laughs) Here's how those responsibilities are split up.
1: I think about what was it, the general Naaman or Naaman, who was command, he went to Elijah and he didn't even go out. He sent his servant tell him go wash in the river Jordan. And at first he was like, why should I? We have greater rivers than this in Damascus, right? He wouldn't even come. He sent his servant. I thought this guy was a prophet. And then his friend, you know, his vice general or whomever was like, hey, if he would have told you to do a great thing, wouldn't you have done it? then why can't you do this simple thing? And I often think about that like you're called to be a greeter, or maybe you're called to now be a disinfector. As soon as people <laughs> go in, you disinfect the doorknobs. Yep. And you think, how can this task have eternal significance? The question is, is how do I perform this task in such a way that it has eternal significance? And and that changes the, the tempo. That changes the whole symphony in our hearts. And that's what it's all about, is getting our hearts and mind in the right place so we can be aligned with Heavenly Father, so we can feel different things, so we can have the Spirit, so we hear with new ears and see with new eyes. Let us be awake and not be wary of well-doing, for we are laying the foundation of a great work, even preparing for the return
0: of the Savior. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come follow me.